This episode is brought to you by REI. In the fight for life outdoors, every action, big and small, matters. Join REI in making action a part of your life with the Opt to Act plan. 52 weeks of simple action to reduce your impact, get active, and leave the world better than you found it. Nature doesn't have time to wait. Opt to Act. Find out more about the Opt to Act plan at REI.com slash opt outside. This is Insight, and I'm Charlie. I'm here with Allie. How are you tonight? I'm very good. How are you? I, I'm all right. I'm melting a little. It's really hot here. And it's the opposite here. It's very cold. We, we have a cross-cultural <laughs> podcast here. So everyone might notice that Tim isn't here. Tim has decided to step back from Insight. Insight has grown right alongside his duties at his full-time job, and there just aren't enough hours in the day for both. We want to thank Tim, first of all, because we wouldn't even have insight if he didn't get us together to do it. Allie and I are going to continue on, and we have some awesome news in that regard. First, we are going to go weekly starting in August. We plan to alternate some shorter episodes with longer ones after we go weekly, but who knows what will happen once we get started researching and talking. Some topics seem short, but end up filling an hour once we're done with them. And Allie, do you want to talk about our other big news? Yeah, so we're now on Patreon, which is, if you search Insight Pod, you'll find us. And as a reward for the Patreon subscribers, they can also get mini episodes. So if you go on there, there's a bunch of different different rewards. So yes, if you can, please donate. Yeah, we're looking forward to doing those mini episodes too. We've got some really fun and different ideas for those. And there'll be one every new one every month. Yeah, but tonight we're going to talk about the Velisca Axe murders. So we'll walk through the grisly unsolved murder of the Moore family, plus their two young guests, and then we'll talk about the suspects. So Allie, are you ready to turn this cold case red hot? We'll solve it. Tonight, it's going to happen. So just a quick warning before we get started. This isn't a gore warning because I assume you don't need that if you're listening to a podcast about an axe murder. You know it's coming. The warning is that in this case, all the involved people and suspects have passed away. It's likely most of their children have passed away. So we feel maybe a little more free to speculate. And so if what you like about us is that we don't speculate, well, this might not be your episode because I I plan on <laughs> speculating. Oh, I have speculated all over the place. Villisca, Iowa is a small city about two and a half hours north of where I live in Kansas City. And this puts it in the southwest corner of Iowa. And our crime takes place in June of 1912. At the time, Villisca had about 2,500 residents and it was a town on the rise. There was daily train service as well as many businesses on the main street. The Moore family was a well-to-do family. And we have Josiah Moore, the dad, who went by Joe or sometimes JB. I've seen both. He was a successful businessman with his own store after previously working for Frank Jones. He married Sarah Montgomery, and together they had four children. Herman, Mary Catherine, who went by Catherine, Arthur Boyd, who went by Boyd, and Paul. They were active in the local Presbyterian church, and at the time of their deaths, Joe was 43, Sarah 39, and the children were 11, 10, 7, and 5. So, Allie, can you tell us a little bit about what happened on Sunday, June 9th, preceding the murder? Okay, so on the morning of June 9, 1912, we have two other victims in this crime, Stillinger's sisters, Lena, who was 12, and Ina, who was 10. They attended Sunday services at the Presbyterian Church, the girls were intending to visit with their grandmother for the day after the church had completed, and then their plans for the rest of the day was that the girls would go back to the church to attend special Children's Day activities in the evening before returning to their grandmother's house to spend the night. But the evening plans changed when Catherine Moore invited her two friends to spend the night at her house after the Children's Day activities. 
Joe called the Stillinger home and left a message with Lena and Ina's older sister Blanche to pass along to their parents that the girls would be staying there the night. This was in part because the girls seemed kind of afraid to walk back to their grandmother's house alone in the dark. The Children's Day activities were led by Sarah Moore and they began at about 8 o'clock, so this was a night thing and it would have been quite dark when they had finished at about 9.30pm. So once the festivities were all wrapped up, the entire Moore family and the two Stillinger girls walked back to the Moore home and it is thought that they would have gotten there somewhere between 9.45 and 10pm. And then sometime, likely after midnight, but before five o'clock in the morning, someone entered the home and killed all eight sleeping occupants with Joe's own axe. The next morning on June 10th, a neighbor named Mary Peckham came out at about 5 a.m. to do some chores. According to her testimony at the coroner's inquest, she was in and out all morning and noticed the Moore family hadn't been out. It was normal for the Moore family to be sort of up and about tending to the animals quite early in the morning. Yeah, if you really imagine a house with four children and animals that need to be, you know, cows that need to be milked and chickens that need to be out, I imagine the early mornings have a lot of livelihood in this house. But she noticed that nobody was up. And she even noticed that the chickens were still cooped and no one had even started morning chores. So she thought maybe they had slept in. She knocked on the door, but she didn't get an answer. And then she attempted to open the door, but it was locked. She called over to Joe's brother's house and asked his sister-in-law if there was a family issue with the father. I mean, she just thought, why else would they be gone? Maybe there was a family emergency. But of course, that's not what had happened. And it wasn't normal to lock doors in that time. People quite often left doors unlocked. So when she found the door locked, that seemed pretty strange. Yeah, and it's actually interesting because at the later inquest, one of Joe's many brothers testified that Joe did lock the door. But I don't know if he he did it often. I mean, so he didn't find it immediately suspicious that it was locked. Most people thought they had just gotten called away because some kind of family crisis. But they called family members on both sides and that wasn't what happened. She let the chickens out and got one of Joe's employees to come by and take care of the other animals. So that should kind of tell you what kind of town it is. I mean, I've lived in neighborhoods where you could have a week's worth of newspapers at the end of your driveway and no one would even give you a second thought. But these neighbors, you know, jumped in and assumed there was an emergency and just kind of pitched in. It it seemed like quite a close-knit community. Exactly. After all these phone calls and getting the animals taken care of, One of Joe's brothers came by. His name's Ross. He knocked. He tried to look in the windows, but they were all covered. And he had a spare key, so he went ahead and let himself in. There's some conflicting information as to whether Mary Peckham stayed on the porch or if she went into the first room. But regardless, Ross went further into the bedroom off the parlor, and that's where he found Lena and Ina Mae, the two guests, on the bed and covered in dark stains. Both people immediately left the home and called the sheriff. So let's go ahead and walk through the crime scene. Allie, do you want to take us through the first floor? Sure. So the house has a porch with two entrances, one in the kitchen and one in the parlour. There's also a door between the kitchen and the parlour as well. Beyond the parlour was a bedroom. Like Charlie said, Lena and Ina were found in the parlour bedroom Ina was sleeping closest to the wall when she was killed and a coat was used to cover her face afterwards. Lena was situated partway down the bed. This led to some speculation that she may have been struck and shifted or wiggled down the bed before she died. She wasn't wearing any underwear and her nightgown had shifted upward. There was some blood on the inside of one of her knees and injuries to one arm, which appeared to be defensive, as if she was trying to defend herself against the attacker. She was the only one to exhibit any sort of defensive wounds. There also has been some speculation that Lena may have been sexually assaulted. However, the medical examiner said that there were no signs that she had been abused. 
There was also a two to four pound slab of bacon on the floor, wrapped in what was either a rag or a dishcloth. Additionally, there was also part of a keychain or watch chain on the floor next to the bacon. It has been reported that this chain, either a key or a watch chain, was not that of the families. In the kitchen, they found nearly identical slabs of bacon in the kitchen icebox. They also found a bowl of water with some blood in it and a plate of food. It is suspected that the attacker cleaned his hands in the bowl of water and had a meal. So upstairs, there were two bedrooms and an attic. At the inquest, it was noted that the doctor and sheriff and two others made their way up the stairs. They saw a lamp on the floor that blocked their way enough that the sheriff had to pick it up and move it so they could come through. In the master bedroom, the parents were found dead in their beds. There was a mark on the ceiling from the axe as it had been swung. You'll see it repeated that Joe was the only one hit with the blade and everyone else was hit with the blunt side of the axe, kind of giving the impression that Joe was the real target. However, another source reports that later grand jury testimony disputes this. Yeah. Unfortunately for us, I don't have the spare $40 to order a copy of this record, so we'll just put this in the unproven but totally provable for anyone who has $40 to spare. So if you do... Just email us and let us know what the document says. <laughs> We'd appreciate it. <laughs> the, the other bedroom had all four of the Moore children, and they were all found murdered in their beds. And as Allie said, Lena was the only one downstairs who had any signs of defensive wounds or being awake when the attack happened. And they believe that all the children and the parents upstairs had been killed in their sleep. In the attic, there were some cigarette butts found. So, piecing all this together, investigators believe that the killer possibly hid in the attic waiting for the family to turn in for the night. Then after everyone was asleep, he attacked the parents in the master bedroom. I mean, it makes sense to attack the people who could actually stop the attack first. Yeah, they were the biggest threat in the situation, so it does make sense that he went for Joe first and right. then Sarah. He then killed the four children, and they believe that he may have returned to the master bedroom to continue the attack on the parents, even though they were already almost positively dead at this point. He then went downstairs and attacked the Stillinger sisters. The axe was left in that downstairs bedroom, along with the bacon and the piece of keychain that Allie talked about. So, Allie, have you seen any speculation on what these little pieces of evidence are? I, I don't know. To me, like the, the bacon and the keychain and the washing of the hands and the bowl of water and the covering the mirrors, pictures and faces, it just all seems very ritualistic to me. And that like, it does seem that he knew where he was going to go past the girls and then bypass the more children and go straight into the parents' room. My first thought is that he knows this family or he has definitely scoped it out ahead of time. He knew exactly what he was going to do. I've seen two... Um, pieces of speculation over the bacon and one was that while he didn't actually touch Lena Stillinger that he did use the bacon as a masturbatory aid I don't know the other speculation is that it was used to somehow confuse the bloodhounds like the scent of meat but I mean they use meat to train bloodhounds yeah, it doesn't make any sense really yeah, I mean, if he rubbed himself in bacon, he'd be more likely to get tracked down exactly. by the bloodhounds. Exactly. But maybe he didn't know that. I don't know. All the windows with the curtains had been drawn, and the windows that didn't have curtains had been covered. Also, the lamps were placed on the floor, and clothing items from the home were used to cover all of the mirrors. It's unlikely that the family would have put the lamps on the floor due to the fire hazard, so my guess is he used the lamps to see his way around and putting them on the ground made him less noticeable to Definitely. any passing neighbors. So what are your thoughts on the windows and mirrors? You had, I mean, the windows seem kind of obvious just to mask his presence, but the mirrors, I mean, that's like the creepy factor. So I'm going to totally psychoanalyze him now. I'm thinking that he covered the mirrors because he couldn't stand to look at himself and what he had done. And that he covered the faces because 
he didn't want them to look back at him in any way. And I think that's also why he wasn't just satisfied in just killing them. He came back for repeated hits. So it wasn't just their blank stare looking back at him. Yeah, they said that the faces were pretty much unrecognizable. So, I mean, that's it. Yeah, I think that on one hand, I, the mirrors really give me that creepy vibe and he wouldn't want to see himself. I mean, it could have also had a practical where when it, it would avoid reflective light going out so that, you know, make it even less likely he'd be detective. But the oh, the point. covering the faces, it really, I mean, it tells me that he didn't get off on the gore of the crime. So this wasn't a necessarily a crime that was motivated by the enjoyment of the gore and the gross parts of murder. Yeah. What's interesting to me at this point is that the crime was both methodical and passionate. He took everyone out first, which is very methodical, and then he went back and overdid it and took it to another level. That's passionate to me. That's a good point. It's like there's two MOs here. Exactly. Which is which is odd. Was it ever suspected that there were two attackers? That you read? No, I have not seen that anywhere yet. I thought it myself because nobody woke up except one person. That's it. And they, I mean, four of the children were all in the same bedroom. That it seems just odd that so much happened. And if the axe hit the ceiling, that's not quiet. Exactly. And I would imagine when the, this is horrible, but when the axe first hit the head, it would have made a sound. And with, I'm surprised Sarah didn't wake up. When the first child was hit, the other children didn't wake up. I mean, was it possible that they could have been drugged or gassed? Yeah, there could have been something else because I, you know me, I I like these stories, but I don't like too much graphic detail. But one of the little boys was like laying on his stomach. So he was very obviously asleep and heard nothing. Or he would have been at least on his back, you know. It would make sense if there were more than one. However, there was only there was one axe found, and it was believed to be the murder weapon. Yes. So maybe the jump to only one attacker comes from they only found one murder weapon, but there could have been another one. That's a good point. You have studied criminology, so you know what the worst thing that can happen to a cr- crime scene is. Inviting the whole town to walk through it. <laughs> exactly. Everyone, come on in. That's pretty much exactly what happened. The police allowed, or they at least couldn't stop, the citizens from walking through the house to have a look for themselves, which I can't even personally imagine. The house wasn't secured until noon. And in fact, a local man took what was likely part of Joe's skull away from the scene. What? I read that. That's horrible. Of all the keepsakes, I I can't even imagine. I'm, like I said, not much for the gore. A search was conducted through alleys and in the barns for the killer, assuming he was a vagrant who was just kind of hiding out somewhere. They did use the bloodhounds, but no one was found. Fingerprint analysis didn't yield any results either. And mind you, this is 1912, so there's no database out there. So one of the the things, too, that I thought was a bit, I don't know, poor investigation work was that the coroner which is weird in its own right because it wasn't like he was a police officer. Anyway, the coroner suggested that the killer waited for the Moors to go to sleep and then went into the family barn because there was an impression on some bales of hay, like someone was laying on them or sitting on them, and that there was a knot hole where the killer could have watched through the hole. But look, I don't know how they could have come to that conclusion. I mean, look, as we've said, there's four children in that house. And if I, if it was me as a child, I would have been all over that hay, playing on it, jumping on and off. And there was also animals in the barn. So, so the impressions in the hay wasn't necessarily the killer. Yeah, absolutely that. And also I saw it read somewhere where some people thought, oh, there's an impression in the closet. So he must have been sitting in the closet. And it's like, okay, so... The description of the family home is that they actually kept some of their clothes out of the closet because the closets were so full of stuff. And if there was an impression someone was sitting on these suitcases, I mean, they're not big plastic suitcases of today. They would have all crumpled. And there's no way someone crammed themselves into a 1912 size closet. So it seems like there were a lot of conclusion jumping based on things that really, once you kind of follow it through to the logical end... Don't go anywhere. 
And if you go online, there is a virtual tour you can do. So Yeah, don't do it at night. No. That's what I did. The sound that accompanies, accompanies the tour is pretty it's, creepy it's as well. It's creepy. <laughs> yeah, but you could have a look through the house and see for yourself that it wasn't the biggest house. It was quite small and cramped. So back to the destruction of the onlookers, they, there was rumours that there was 100 people walking through that house at, not long after the crime. So there would have been fingerprints everywhere. Absolutely. There would have been fingerprints, footprints people moving things. Someone was there and able to remove a part of a body. The bodies actually weren't completely... The last body was removed from the house. It wasn't until 2 a.m. They had to kind of set up a makeshift morgue at the fire station because, I mean, eight bodies in one night, that's a lot. It's horrible. So during the inquest, multiple people were asked about any enemies of the Moors, and they really did focus on Joe Moore's possible enemies. Only one name came out in the inquest. Ed Seely, an employee of Joe's, said that he had a brother-in-law named Sam Moyer and that Sam had threatened to get even with Josiah. Other than that, in the early days of the investigation, the town seemed really ready to believe that it was some deranged tramp making his way through town, possibly on the train who committed the crimes. And I can see where there's some comfort in thinking that, that it was just someone who hopped yeah. off the train and now they're back on the train and they're going somewhere else. Well, that's a possibility because um, cause I think the problem is when you're looking at the suspects is that the murder could, murderer could have left the town immediately. 30 trains did go through Villisca every day. Not only did they have their normal residence, but they had a lot of people coming and going. Back in the 1910s, it was quite common to take the train to look for work. So you would stop at one town and see if there was any employment. No, well then back on the train and to the next town and so on and so on. So there would have been a large number of transients. Yeah, well actually, when we go through our suspect list, there's one that really rose to the top on that. But um, is there anything else you wanted to add before we walk through the suspect list? No, I'm ready to see the suspects. All right, so since Sam Moyer's name did come up at the inquest, we can start with him. The short story is that he didn't do it. <laughs> he had an airtight alibi. I did not, I don't know if you found what that alibi was. No. I couldn't find it anywhere. No. I just heard that it was an airtight alibi, so yep. he was off the list. The vagrant seemed believable enough, and like I said, there's this one that rose to the top, and his name was Andrew Sawyer. So it starts with Thomas Dyer. And he was a railroad foreman, and he hired Andrew Sawyer the morning after the murders, so the morning they were discovered. And over the several days that Sawyer was working for Dyer, he acted very suspiciously. He read the newspapers and followed the case very closely. He told people he was in Villisca at the time of the murder, but he left so he wouldn't be a suspect. And then according to Dyer's son, Sawyer offered to show them how the murderer had escaped the town and this set off enough red flags that they contacted the sheriff and turned Andy Sawyer's name over to them. So that's the case for it being Sawyer. But there, there is some dispute that it could have even possibly been him. He was arrested for vagrancy in Osceola, Iowa. And the sheriff there said he put him on town at 11 p.m. on the night of the murder. And we know he was asking Dyer for a job by 6 a.m. in Creston. Yep. So I got out my, my fancy Google map here <laughs> and looked at other people's research into train timetables. And he could have gotten on that train in Osceola, made it to Villisca around 1 or 2 a.m., and then turned back around and went back to Creston in time to ask Dyer for the job. It's possible time-wise. So what do you think about... That. Yeah, I don't put much stock in Sawyer being a viable suspect. Um, he bought a newspaper and was interested in the crimes, but then wasn't everyone else in the town? And we are still. Exactly. <laughs> We're talking about it now, 100 years later. If interest in the crime makes you a suspect, then I guess the both of us are suspects now. And look, he slept in his, and they said that he slept in his clothes. Well, you know, he was a vagrant. He was homeless. What else was he going to do? It gets pretty obvious very quickly that if you look at some of the other suspects we're going to run going to run through, I think the police were just desperate to make an arrest in the case and they were just focusing on anyone that could 
very possibly be the attacker. And while he had, like, literally enough time to do this, it doesn't really fit the full theory of the crime if you look at the big picture. No. So it's believed that the murderer was in the home for some time prior to the murder and then after the murder because they washed their hands, the bowl of blood, ate a meal. He just didn't have time. Right. And the person who did this would have had to have some familiarity with the house, in my view, because he would have... He knew to kill the parents. He knew which room was theirs and neutralize that threat, then go through the house and kill the children. It was someone who spent time in the house before, saw the layout, and then went and hid until the family came. That's my theory. There's my speculation. To me, it would have had to be someone who had been in the house or knew the family. To know the makeup of the family, it just had to be, it couldn't have been someone from out of town, in my view. Yeah, I think it would be for them to get there early enough, know the family was going to be gone at this program. They would have had to been familiar with the town and the schedule because this children's program wasn't a regular thing. No. This was a special end-of-the-year Sunday school wrap-up. I, I agree. I think it's someone who's familiar with the the whole picture, not someone who just blew into town. That's it. But I do think that Sawyer was possibly not a very stable human being and came across as creepy. Obviously, if you say to someone, I'll show you how to kill someone and with an axe, that's pretty creepy. Yeah, and if it's, you know, well, I was going to stay around, but, you know, they thought I thought they might think I murdered someone, so I left, you know. <laughs> and, of course, he left long before the murder actually had been discovered. So his story just doesn't add up for being a viable suspect. No. There is a serial killer theory out there, and since the fall of 1911, there had been other similar murders in the Midwest. And these murders and the question if they're connected could actually make an entire episode by themselves. But leading up to the murders, specifically in Villisca, there were similar murders in Colorado Springs, Colorado, Monmouth, Illinois, Ellsworth, Kansas, and Paola, Kansas. And investigators early on saw these connections. This isn't something that came about later. Pretty early on, they saw this and suspected... One person they suspected was Henry Lee Moore. And he's a man who went on to kill his mother and grandmother, who he lived with in Columbia, Missouri. And the weapon was an axe. So for those who aren't familiar with the American Midwest, all of these locations, except for Colorado Springs, are within a few hours of each other. For someone who worked on the railroad, as Henry Lee Moore did, familiarity with all of these locations could be expected. I think the difference between Henry Lee Moore and the Valiska murders is he killed his mother and grandmother and through motivation of money because he hoped to gain their assets when they died. He wouldn't have got the same reward out of the Valiska murders. That's pretty much the biggest check in his wasn't him box for this is that he had no indication that he had the murderous ways of a serial killer. He murdered for a very specific reason. Exactly. And there's another suspected serial killer in this area, and we'll discuss him, but I first want to talk about another suspect, Frank Jones, because part of this theory is that Frank Jones hired this other quote-unquote serial killer to, to murder the Moore family. So Frank Jones owned a large and successful store in Villisca, and Joe Moore worked for him for something like nine years. He helped found the bank in the town, and at the time of the murders was serving as state representative. He later became a state senator. He spent 25 years as the superintendent of Sunday school for the Methodist Church. And I mean, really, he sounds like a murderer, right? Sunday school, so civil servant. <laughs> But the reason people look to him is that if you exclude the deranged killer theory, you have to start thinking of a motive. And Frank had a motive. Joe worked for Frank for many years. And when he opened his own hardware store, he worked in direct competition to Frank. He didn't open a different type of store. He literally opened the same store. And he took a large client, John Deere. That part of the business went with him. Now, people who work in corporate jobs today often have to sign um, non-compete paperwork when they're hired that they won't work, they won't immediately go work for a competitor or they won't take clients or accounts with them when they leave. These non-compete clauses have prevented many axe murders. 
And according to one source I read, the two men would not speak to each other and they would cross the street in order to avoid each other. The fact that Frank Jones was a suspect also split the town in half. People were taking sides based on religious affiliations. As you said, Jones was a Methodist and Moore was a Presbyterian. And the congregations were like blaming each other for what happened. And it got to the point that members of the different congregations avoided each other on the street and they would walk on separate sides of the road. And there is some gossip that gives Frank a little bit of an additional motive. Frank Jones had a daughter-in-law and she had a reputation for meeting with men without her husband or a chaperone present. 1912, this is rather scandalous. You also couldn't just place a private phone call in these days. So she couldn't call these men to set up these arrangements. You had to go through a central operator and that central operator could, should she choose to, listen in. She could then, if she chose to, tell the whole town about your business. And it is rumored that the daughter-in-law and Joe arranged their meetups by telephone and were having an affair. <sighs> Scandalous. So a business competitor who stole your biggest client and is rumored to be having an affair with your daughter. So these are our motives for Frank Jones. Big motives. These are pretty big motives. Exactly. And eventually the rumors of Frank Jones' involvement led to an investigation into him being not the murderer, but the money behind a murder for hire. And the man they thought wielded the axe is our other potential serial killer, William Mansfield. He's similar to Henry Lee Moore in that his family also died after Velisca murders. His wife, child, and his wife's parents were murdered with an axe in 1914. Mansfield was suspected in that crime. In comes a private investigator, James Wilkerson. He was so convinced that Frank Jones hired William Mansfield to kill the Moore family that he began kind of covertly investigating him and then not so covertly investigating him. He believed all the killings in the Midwest were connected to William Mansfield and that he even claimed that he could prove that Mansfield was in every area on the nights of the murders. It sounded like he'd become obsessed with Mansfield and Jones. Absolutely. And just, I don't know that he thinks like this serial killer just happens to be around to be a hired gun. Usually you're one or the other. I mean, I'm guessing. I don't actually know much about the murderous <laughs> element of our society. But Frank Jones actually got really sick of these rumors. They eventually escalated to posters around town accusing him and Mansfield of the crime. And so he sued Wilkerson for slander. The best defense to slander is to prove that what you said is true. So the defamation suit became kind of a mini murder trial for Frank Jones. Wilkerson had various eyewitnesses who saw and heard things related to the crime. However, this trial was in 1916, four years after the murders. So he had all these witnesses who didn't say anything in 1912 who were ready to testify in 1916. And really, if Jones actually did all this, is he the kind of guy that you really want to make angry? Like, I wouldn't... If I had thought he had hired a hitman to kill a whole family, look, I'd be just stepping away. There's no way I'd be making him angry knowing what he was capable of. And at the time, he had political power as well. I mean, that's a yeah. really risky person to tick off. And as far as I know, Wilkerson did not turn up dead. No. There was actually a witness who testified at the inquest that he saw nothing unusual but then testified in this trial that he saw the son of Frank Jones enter the Moore home. Not only are these new stories coming out, they're actually changing. However, Wilkerson was found not guilty of the slander. That's not to say that the jury necessarily believed that Frank Jones was involved in the murders, but that there was enough evidence that accusing him did not rise to the level of slander. Then there was a grand jury proceedings against Mansfield. The details are private, as grand juries tend to be, but in the end, they failed to indict Mansfield after he produced a payroll receipt. And it proved that he was in, in Illinois at the time of the murders. But if you are a, as obsessed as Wilkerson is, you will say that Frank Jones's power, he was able to forge that receipt or whatever. This pretty much ended... Frank Jones' political career because of the widely held belief that he used his influence to sway the investigation. 
Another suspect was Reverend Kelly. And I've seen his name, his full name, given a couple different ways. And I think Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, or some combination of those is his name, but we'll just call him Reverend Kelly. Yeah. He was born in England, and he had a history of mental problems. He had his first nervous breakdown as a teenager, and his mother said it came from his extensive studying, which in itself could be a sign of some kind of obsessive-compulsive disorder. He switched from Methodist to Presbyterian and became a traveling preacher. Now, this traveling preacher may be code for no church wanting to have him as their full-time minister. (laughs) He was in Villisca the night of the children's program and attended it. He left around 5 a.m. on the train just hours before the murders were to be discovered. Yes. So, before we get into the case against Reverend Kelly, which there is one, Let's get into the case in the case of in his favor out of the way. The main thing is he was really small. He was about 5'2", which is one and a half meters, and he weighed 119 pounds or 54 kilograms. So the basic idea is that a man that size wouldn't have the power to to wield an axe that many times. I mean, you would need some strength to be and stamina to be able to kill eight people with an axe to the level that they were struck. And I mean, he may have been fine to kill the children, but Mr. Moore was over six foot and more than 200 pounds. So that would have been a bit more of a challenge for him. If he didn't incapacitate him on the first blow, it would have been over for someone as small as Robert Kelly. And I couldn't find anywhere about the heights of the ceilings, but since Reverend Kelly was so short, I think it would have been hard for him with the upswings to hit the ceiling. My guess is a lot of houses in that time, the upstairs had lower ceilings, so they might have only been six or seven foot ceilings, whereas downstairs might have been eight. But I like, like you, I didn't see that, and which is odd because the house is open and you can go up there. So if I ever make it up there, I will measure for you. I'll take my tape measure and we'll figure this out. I would assume that if Joe was six foot, it would have been. A, li- a bit above six foot. Yeah, maybe six and a half, seven. I know even growing up, my house it wasn't even this old, and the upstairs did have shorter ceilings. But yeah, I'll measure it when I get up there. So Reverend Kelly, much like Andrew Sawyer, became obsessed with the murder. This kind of makes sense because he was there that night. Even if if I had nothing to do with a murder, but I was there the night it happened, I would probably follow it pretty closely as well. He also had a delicate mental state, so it may, so he may have attached himself even more emotionally, having just seen the family. He did go a little far, though. A week he after did. the murder, he showed up and claimed to be from the Scotland Yard, so that English accent really came in handy, and he walked through the house. He began writing letters to the investigators as well as to the families of the victims. The investigators did write him back, generally responding positively to him in the hopes that he'd reveal more in his letters. He wrote some things about having heard an axe thud that night, but it's kind of hard to separate what might be true from what might be the imaginings of a somewhat unstable man. He had some odd behaviors sexually. He ended up in South Dakota at one point, and he had gone back to being a Methodist preacher because the Presbyterian Seminary didn't work out for him. He advertised for a female stenographer, and a woman responded. Reverend Kelly wrote back, and we don't know what was in the letter, but the young woman took it immediately to her pastor, who contacted the police. After the police posed as the woman and continued correspondence with Reverend Kelly, he was arrested for sending salacious material through the mail. The judge said of the letter, and I quote, It is so obscene, lewd, lascivious, and filthy as to be offensive to this honorable court and improper to be spread upon the record thereof. So by 1914 standards, it was so bad they couldn't even read it into the record. He was convicted and sent to a mental hospital. I kind of want to read the letter now. After hearing all that. (laughs) You know, and it really makes me wonder how bad it was. I know there were certain things in there about her working in the nude. By today's standard, it was probably pretty tame. Yeah. In 1917, after this this incident with 
the stenographer, Reverend Kelly was put on trial for the Velisca Axe murders. Yes. Some of the evidence heard was pretty convincing. He was left-handed, and the investigators believe the culprit was left-handed due to the blood spatter. He had sent bloody clothing to the laundry, and he supposedly told people on the train on the way out of Villisca about the murder, even though the bodies hadn't been discovered before he left town, and most damning of all, he confessed. He sure did. The first jury deadlocked 11-1 in favor of acquittal, because even though he confessed, it was obvious that his confession was, shall we say, encouraged through the use of force. The people on the train who said he announced the deaths changed their story and said that didn't happen. So the second trial, he was found not guilty. So there's no indictment for Frank Jones or Williams Mansfield, and there's a not guilty verdict for Reverend Kelly. And that pretty much ends the courtroom side of this case. Nobody else ended up in court over this. As far as Kelly goes, look, besides the fact that he was a weird, creepy guy, and maybe someone that would do something like this, there wasn't really anything to tie him to the crime. No, he was in town and he was weird. That seems to be his entire, the entire case against him. There were two confessions to the crime, in addition to Reverend Kelly's. A Reverend Burris reported taking a deathbed confession of a man, whose name he couldn't recall, who claimed to have committed the murders. And this was about a year after the murders. However, the man gave details of where he lived and his occupation. And in a town of 2,500 people like Villiscus, it would have led them to somebody there. But the details didn't connect. So they couldn't ever figure out who the person who confessed was. And Reverend Burris couldn't remember who he spoke to. And I don't put much stock in this claim. I mean, if someone told you all about this horrendous crime, especially especially such a high-profile crime, and it happened in a town that you had lived in, wouldn't you remember? He had a lot of details about the person and that the person lived in Villisca, but all those details should have led to somebody, somebody who had moved away after the murders, and it didn't. The, the one most important information, the person's name, Reverend Burris just couldn't remember. Right. In 1931, a man named George Myers was arrested in Detroit for burglary, and he confessed to being paid to commit the crime. He said he killed the parents and four children, but he denied killing the girls downstairs. Now, that would really only work if the two-killer theory ended up being true. But I do think it's odd that he would say, yeah, oh yeah, I killed six of them, but I didn't kill those two. Doesn't make sense to me either. I mean, if he's happy enough to admit to murdering the Moors and he did do the crime, then why deny killing the the Stillinger girls? I mean, it does seem to me as though he knew it was a big case and he just wanted his 15 minutes of fame. However, it does seem funny to me that the rumour did start that Frank Jones did hire someone to kill the family and my estate's that a businessman offered him $2,000 to do the hit. So maybe, just maybe, Wilkerson might have been onto something with the hitman theory, just had the wrong person. And maybe Myers denied murdering the Stillinger girls because he felt guilty for killing them for reasons that maybe they weren't part of his plan or maybe because of how Lena was found or maybe he didn't want people to know he had some weird interest in bacon. I I don't know. You know, I see your point. There are motives to denying murdering the two extra kids. Both how Lena was found in the rumors about her being sexually molested and also that they weren't supposed to be there. Exactly. So do you have any other suspects you've come across? That was pretty much what I could gather. Yeah, I mean, confessions did come out of the woodwork well into the 1930s. However, most of these confessions got the details of the murders wrong. And I think this happens with any big murder case, that people are going to confess even though they definitely couldn't have done it. And Velisca residents suspected anyone who wasn't local. Some were genuine suspects, but some were just guilty for being out-of-towners. I kind of go back and forth. It would just be, you know, so great if it was some so great, you know, terrible. But it would be nice if it was a serial killer, but nothing about this says serial killer. No, definitely not. The the person was familiar with the layout of the house. They spent time in the house before and after. They hid out. They were specifically targeting this family. And 
my speculation is that it is someone connected to the family. Of the people we've discussed, I do lean towards Frank Jones, though it was daring to take it to trial if he had done it, and all that evidence got laid out there. I think there, I think when we're looking at the suspects, there is some experience involved in the crime because the blunt end of the axe was used. I think that shows that the attacker did learn from a mistake, that the pointy end would get stuck in the skull and the blunt end wouldn't. Yeah, that's information I wouldn't know because I, you know, I'm not an axe murderer. So, so if I picture an axe murderer, I picture the pointy end of the blade, but you're right, that wouldn't do the job you need it to do when you're killing multiple people. So that does show some experience or some knowledge of how this works. But then again, if Joe was hit with the pointy end first, then the attacker might have thought, well, hang on, this doesn't work the way I want it to work, and then turned it around for everyone else. Right. But then that doesn't explain why Sarah didn't wake up when Joe was hit. Because that would be quite the production. Exactly, because you're trying to get, this is horrible, but you're trying to get the axe out of Joe. So do you have a preferred theory? Well, look, I, I think Jones, out of all the suspects, Jones, he may have been involved in some way. He's the most likely out of everyone. I don't know. My theory is, and it may be far out there, but if Joe was happy enough to have one alleged affair, maybe he was having other affairs some other husband got cranky, saw Sarah Moore up in the church preaching about preaching about other things and they've gotten cranky and come back and taught them a lesson. Could you imagine if your wife was having an affair with a man and then you saw his wife stand up leading the Sunday school, his kids giving little talks about Jesus and how, you know, it's important to follow the Bible and you... I mean, you're just seething over it. Exactly. You know, it would come across as hypocritical that they're seen as this pious family when you know the truth about Joe. Exactly. And and in this town, this is a small town, and back in that day where everyone knew everyone else's business, you, you would know that it was going to get out eventually, and then you're embarrassed. So why not cut it off at the source? Yeah, I think I'll go with the jealous husband <laughs> theory. That sounds good. <laughs> That sounds the most likely, and that would also explain the brutality and the overkill of the passion with the planning. Exactly. Exactly. So the Velisca house is still standing. It was purchased in the mid-1990s, and they restored it to its 1912 state. You can tour it as well as pay to spend the night. In 2014, there was a visitor from Wisconsin who was conducting what is called a recreational paranormal investigation overnight, and he stabbed himself while in the house. He was flown to a hospital in Omaha with critical injuries. He did survive, and it happened around 1245 a.m., which is supposedly the time the murders happened, though, I mean, the range of the murders is anywhere from midnight to 5 a.m., probably... 3 or 4 a.m. because they know the murderer stayed in the house afterwards and then Mary Peckham was out by 5 a.m. So between midnight and 3 to 4 a.m. But apparently, paranormally, it happened at 12.45. So would you stay in the house, Allie? No. Just one no. I would, I would happily go there and tour through it. But reading online all the strange stuff that happens between... So the midnight and the 5am period, I, I don't think I'm brave enough. What about yourself? I have read that no one who lived in the house between the murders and when it was bought for tourism purposes have ever reported any paranormal experiences. However, no matter how much I say I don't believe in kind of the supernatural or, or that I'm skeptical of it, I won't say I don't believe in it, but you know that I'm skeptical... At 12.45, I would probably hear every single thing in the... Like, I would psych myself up. I'm the person who will hear things that aren't there because I got myself all psyched up about it. So, no, there's absolutely no way. And there's no, like, plumbing and... Yeah, I mean, you pretty much just, like, grab a sleeping bag and sleep on the floor. And that that just also does not appeal to me. I would go on a tour, though, in the daylight hours. Yeah, that'd be good, yeah. Yeah, so when you fly out here to visit me, we'll... uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll take a road trip up we'll to Velisca. 
Sounds great. All right. So do you have anything else to add? I, I just think that the odds of this crime ever being solved, it's not likely. And the further we get away from the date of the murders, the less and less evidence we have to go on. But look, I think it will main, remain a draw for the historical crime buffs like us and for the paranormal ghost hunters. So, yeah, it's an interesting story. It is an interesting story, and it's, I mean, it has all the elements you want in a good murder mystery. I want to go ahead and thank Colleen, because she is the one who suggested this. She lives in Iowa, and she suggested this topic. So I meant to thank her at the top of the show, but I forgot. So I'll thank her now. She'll forgive me. We are on Facebook. Where can they find us on Facebook? search insight we have our website where you can listen to all the episodes and find some of the research we have done for them just visit www.insightpod.com we are on twitter at insightful pod we have some good conversations there it's a great way to keep in touch i really need to learn how to use twitter yeah, it's confused me. So I couldn't figure out how to reply or where you could see replies. It still kind of confuses me. We had that little mix-up with our episodes, and so I opened Twitter, and I had a whole bunch of notifications, people asking what was going on, and I I got really overwhelmed. <laughs> at Twitter overwhelms me. One of the best ways to keep in touch with us, though, is Facebook. We post our episodes, and if you comment under it, we've had some great feedback and conversations with people about the different cases we've covered, and we would love to talk to you guys more about this one. Definitely. And we'd love to hear your theories. And if and if you want to be like the lovely Colleen and have a case suggestion or any questions at all, um, you can email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. Yeah, with Tim not here, Allie and I have a little bit of space to fill, so <laughs> send those suggestions over. We've got some great ones so far, but yeah, if you send your suggestions soon, you'll most likely get in this year. Yeah, that would be great. So you can contact us any of those ways, and we will see you in two weeks, because we'll still be two weeks for a little bit longer with our next story. So good night, everybody. Bye.